from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital media and the arts. My name is Cheyenne Homan, and in this episode, we'll be talking with Jonathan Ward, the collector and curator behind the Excavated Shellac blog. My name is Jonathan Ward. I live in Los Angeles. I uh, work in the arts and library world for my regular job. And uh, in my spare time, I'm a collector and I compile and co-produce releases of early sound recordings of uh, popular and vernacular music from around the world on early 78 RPM records. How long have you been into this genre of music or this kind of time period? I didn't really start collecting it until I was in my early 20s. But once I discovered that that industry extended into localized communities all over the world, then I really became fascinated and I didn't look back. And I just realized that there was so much that hadn't been reissued, so much that hadn't been discussed either online or on reissues and on CDs or anything. I mean, there was just, you know, hundreds of thousands of records that are virtually unaccounted for today. Do you get like big groups of records when you find them or or have you really just sort of been piecemeal, like collecting one at a time? Um, rarely, because what I'm interested in generally is so hard to find that you tend to only find it piecemeal. Uh, and I'm also that kind of collector. A lot of collectors buy in bulk, whether to resell or to just keep a few records or to trade or things like that. And I have done that occasionally, but it's, it's a lot of work for me personally because I am, you know, busy and it's not my livelihood. Um, but it's also not the way I collect. I prefer to go very judiciously and cautiously. And most collectors who are selling them know how much they're worth. But they also know that there's a f- only a finite amount of people who are interested. However, if you get the right person, you can make the money. You know, uh, It's sort of like a buy or die situation. Collectors of this kind of stuff know that they may not find them ever again. So, you know, it's a very flexible market in that kind of way it's still you know up and down a lot yeah so where do you find most of this stuff is it are there like online sort of dealerships or connections that you've made or do you go physically to places to look uh all of the above really i mean it's sort of catch as catch can a lot of my uh buying and selling is private uh not online uh but there is a lot that I've bought online as well. And there are still uh, private auction lists, not many, but some, uh, that you can bid on silently and and win records that way. But you have to understand that by and large, the 78 RPM community, this very niche community, is not interested in these records, and they don't know what they are. By and large, it's a, it's a group of Western men in Western countries who tend to be interested in jazz, blues, country, or classical music. 
Those are the big dealers. You don't have any dealers, per se, in large amounts of international folk music or vernacular music or African music. It's, it's occasional. Some people do travel in that world, but it's nothing like, like the people who are interested in jazz, European jazz, classical music. That, that is 90 to 95 percent of the market. Would you say that there is a subculture of these buyers and sellers, or is it mostly a solitary sort of activity for you? <laughs> uh, no, it, they all know each other. <laughs> it's a subculture. It's uh, competitive. It's friendly. It's narcissistic. It's n- nasty. You know, it's it's um, it's a big dysfunctional family. <laughs> Sounds like many communities. <laughs> yeah, many collecting communities are exactly the same way. You know, you have people who are total creeps, and you have people who are extremely nice, and you have everything in between. And people who, you know, I I myself have found myself going down the road of occasional just crappy behavior. And I've tried, you know, this is not how I want to be in life. Collecting doesn't run my life. And sometimes I just step back and stop, you know? I mean, because... What is this obsession about? You know, you really got to you got to keep a hold on it. Have you noticed significant differences between sort of the story arc of American 78s and African 78s? There is a big difference, but it's probably because there are far more uh, people interested in American early recordings. There's just much more interest. So the research has been done and is still being done. And, is you know, good research is still coming out. African 78s, uh, zero. You know, I mean, like very little, very little has been. I mean, there are still entire record labels that are turning up in the field that there's absolutely no documentation on and no one's ever heard of them. Not just records, but the whole label, you know, I mean, an entire run of material just kind of magically turns up, you know, who's ever seen this? Is it, you know, so that's fascinating, you know, I mean, that's uh, new ground that's for our ears, really. I mean, and a new opportunity to engage both musically, but also perhaps with, you know, cultures and language and scholars, you know. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that we assume the world is known <laughs> and things are documented and and to just hear that an entire record label has appeared out of nowhere from the past is is pretty fascinating. And people just sort of assume that whatever is out there is findable, discoverable and understood, but I think mainly that's because you know, people are talking about the LP and 45 era. It's just a whole different ball game, you know. Collectors and scholars just tend to not have access to '78, so they just don't want to bother them, not bother with them. I think I even remember there was that guy um, Frank who 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 goes under the name Voodoo Funk and releases a lot of uh, collections of African 45s and has traveled extensively in Africa. And even he, in an interview, I remember saying that. Uh, he says, yeah, he feels really bad sometimes because, you know, he often sees lots of 78s, but they're just too tough to deal with. You know, I mean, he just leaves them there, you know. I mean, that's that's the kind of attitude that's out there. I don't know why that is, but, you know, I'm, I have a few ideas. I mean, 78s are cumbersome. They're brittle. Uh, a lot of people don't like the sound because it sounds old, which is, you know, not necessarily true. 
you need particular type of equipment and needles and, and, and a setup to play them properly and get the best sound out of them. And that, you know, means money and work. And, and also I think a lot of people don't like necessarily collecting in the unknown, you know, or listening to music that is really just outside their sphere of knowledge sort of drastically, you know. Uh, you have to kind of be willing to kind of step into that realm a little bit, which I love, you know, I mean, I think if, if I see, I see something that looks really interesting, I've never heard of it. I don't know what it sounds like, man, I'm, I'm, my interest is really peaked, but I certainly know a lot of people who tend to be more comfortable, uh, listening to and buying things that they're fairly familiar with on some level, you know, just the risk is too large. What if it, what if I don't like it? What if it's a lot of money and I don't like it? I don't know. Yeah, what aesthetically appeals most to you about that era of music recordings? What appeals to me about it is the music itself, the the tactile sensation of the of a sh brittle shellac disc that has traveled thousands of miles to be placed on my turntable from all over the world, and that doesn't have a written history that's that's on a on a, a website you know devoted to uh, crate digging. You know, it's it's not available. It has a history that is unknown to the greater public at large. And and uh, that just, to me, opens up a window of opportunity. I like that. You know, that's it's just different. It's just a different kind of experience than getting a, you know, sealed copy of a record you've known of for years and heard a hundred times and finally you get it. Okay, well, that's nice too, but... Um, but what about that thing that you have no idea what it is, you know, <laughs> and uh, it could open your mind. A lot of people would just say the music itself, and, and that is true for me because I, I have fairly wide-ranging taste. But part of what dictates that wide-ranging taste is the interest in different sounds and different cultures and different histories uh, whether it's the history of the music industry, the history of the people who made the music itself, and the history of the music itself. So you put together um, a compilation called Opica Pende. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, is it intended to be a showcase or sort of a point of entry for listeners, or both? Uh, definitely a point of entry um, because, you know, so many 78s were issued in Africa um, during that period of time that, you know, a four CD set could only be a starting point. So to sort of give people an idea that African music isn't necessarily one thing or another, it isn't necessarily West African, East, South or North. There's so many different histories there that you really can't pinpoint it. So I almost wanted it to make it a little overwhelming. I almost wanted to have some music on there that would not appeal to everybody. If there's something on that set that you don't like, I feel like that's probably good. You know, because, you know that's probably a good thing that, that it's that diverse where you just run into something and say, oh, I can't deal with this. Because that's just as African as something else, you know, uh, on that set. Of course, the great irony is that, you know, once you produce something like that and you lock down the track listing, <laughs> of course, immediately over the next like four years, I got some of the best African records. I ever, you know, I mean, I could just <laughs> completely redo the whole thing or do a volume two, you know, uh, not that I want to. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's just a lot 
of amazing music that came from Africa on 78. And, and I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe, gosh, I don't know, 75,000 individual discs just from sub-Saharan Africa alone. And how many of those are cataloged? Um, that's a lot of music, 75 to a hundred thousand. When you count North Africa, maybe a hundred thousand. Of those hundreds of thousands, what would you estimate your collection to be? Oh, I keep my collection very lean. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm not an archivist in that sense. As a, as a collector, I'm really just a collector. I, I, I only keep what I listen to and like, and I rotate it out because I don't want to drown in, in music. Maybe three or four hundred, four or five hundred now, maybe something like that. Six hundred. I don't know. Something <laughs> like that. Uh, not just in Africa. I mean, that's just a portion of what I collect. What else would you say are your geographic areas of interest? I don't have a lot of limitations. Wherever, you know, music recordings from Ethiopia, Iran, Albania, Spain, Portugal, Vietnam, Cambodia. So I, I'm really just like a sponge. You know, I, I like really deeply traditional stuff. Uh, material from all over the world and I also genuinely love some of the more refined uh, traditional and vernacular music like you know fado guitar solos and and I actually like um, the you know it's like the music of northern Spain and Galician bagpipe music and things like that and I love Martinican jazz made in Paris from 1930 to 30 onward. Uh, some of that music is as wild and as weird as any of the earliest jazz recordings made in the States. It's just, you know, lucky that they're around. It's beautifully weird music in its own way. Totally its own thing. I don't know if there's an area where I'd be, where I'd just be like, oh, I don't like that stuff. I don't think there is, you know. I think the only thing that bugs me is when it sounds like it's music made for rich people. <laughs> but that's really hard to say because there were there was plenty of that and some of it is also pretty amazing, you know. In the early days of the 20th century, some of those first recordings made in Asia, you know, are really wonderful recordings, but who could afford them? You know, and they're obviously made for people with money. You know, I mean, they were still developing a market, so some traditional stuff was recorded. But, you know, you're talking about court music and uh, court singers um, from India, from Japan, China. So that music was sophisticated. It wasn't meant for peasants in the field. They didn't think about records, you know, forget it. So you do have to take that into account. You might only have, like, one person on a city block who had a gramophone player in a in a cafe and... And that's where these records were, were listened to. Well, tell me about your blog. Um, I used to post a lot once a week for the first couple of years. And uh, that's actually a lot of the bulk of the recordings are up there. I didn't write as much, though. And that's a lot of the material that's on the Free Music Archive for download, is, is the material that I uploaded in the first two or three years. And after that, I, I started to post, you know, once a month or thereabouts, but I would concentrate more on the writing itself and research and my own sort of personal take on things. And that's kind of how it stands now. I enjoy doing it. I, I like to 
showcase things that maybe are fun to write about. They're not necessarily like my best, most choicest records or any, you know, it's not a representation of my collection really at all. It's not, you know, it's just a selection of interesting things that I think are fun to write about or fun to listen to. While it's sort of an amateur resource in the sense that it's not necessarily scholarly, um, it's also one of a kind. It's sort of one-stop shopping for information on that kind, those kinds of recordings, and it was pretty much the first website to ever ever do so. So for that, I'm happy to continue it. <laughs> to me, the most the most enjoyable way to share these recordings is not online, and it's not on CD collections. It's in person. Uh, because the record itself has some kind of history. It's passed through hands to get to you. And if it's music that is otherwise totally unavailable, you could be one of the few people who have heard it, who are living, maybe, you know? Have you ever had listening events or listening parties that kind of do that? Yeah, all the time. I mean, yeah, I have people come over all the time. Mm -hmm. That's the most fun thing. Yeah, I, I think that those are coming back. And I think there's kind of a resurgence of interest in music that was committed to vinyl in some form and was sort of lost for a while. Um, I know there's a documentary coming out about Cambodian sort of rock oh, and yeah. roll. Uh-huh. And, yeah, and, you know. and Dust to Digital is actually issuing the soundtrack for that. I've heard it's really good. I can't even keep up with the amount of post-1960 vinyl, you know, reissues of, of music, whether it's from Africa, a Persian soundtrack music, uh, Bollywood, funk from Benin, you know, it, it's really just overwhelming. But a lot of it is, you know, of course, great. The person who's going to really get off listening to Persian funk music from the early 70s is not necessarily the same person who might you know, by a selection of uh, classical Arabic singing from 1908. It just, it just doesn't have the same draw. I mean, it's meaningful and beautiful music, but that's the world we live in, you know. Amanda Petrosich brought this up in her book, and I think it's a salient point that early record collectors love to complain, oh, no one's into this stuff, no one's heard of this stuff. I mean, you should thank your lucky stars that, quote-unquote, no one is interested in this stuff, because that's the only way you'll be able to afford it. <laughs> you know, that's the only way you'll be able to buy it, you and your nerdy friends. We should all be thanking our, you know, thanking the stars that we are actually able to listen to this music before people who have enough money to buy Monet's and Cezanne's get interested in it, because then we're all screwed. You know, <laughs> that's it. Forget it. It's dead. You know, I think that everyone else is lucky, too, that there are people out there collecting and curating and sharing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I totally agree. I mean, it's a labor of love. I mean, especially in the 78 world, we are not getting rich off this, you know. <laughs> this is uh, really a labor of love. I don't think I would want to be just a collector who just sat on a bunch of records and did nothing with it. I mean, God, it's kind of, it's just too solitary for me. So if anybody was interested in starting to collect or learning more about this, what would you recommend they do? You know, start at the beginning and read a lot and, and become and understand the community a little bit. I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of young collectors 
and there aren't that many. You'd think there might be more and more young collectors. There are really not that many, actually. Um, there are people out in, the, out in the world who sort of specifically collect a specific type of music, but there's very few generalist collectors. I'm, I'm proud to be a generalist collector, for sure. Uh, I, I don't think that's a, a bad word because it's just sort of about self-fulfillment at this point for me and an enjoyable, enjoyable listening. And at the same time, picking up things that are extraordinarily uncommon. It takes a special breed to actually want to have the shellac. <laughs> it's, uh, what a weird bunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that one of the weird bunch was willing to take time today and talk about it. Oh, so thank yeah. you. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Anytime. Thanks for interviewing or thanks for chatting. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and the Free Music Archive and is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Our theme song this week is The Spider-Man's Nano Loop by Uncle Bibby and can be found at freemusicarchive.org. To read Jonathan's blog and listen to selections from his collection, visit excavatedshellac.com.